On today's episode, we step outside of music and into the world of film, television, and comedy. Daniel Backner is an entertainment lawyer who first got his taste of this crazy biz through handling contract work for the Just for Laughs Comedy Festival. Funny enough, he and I met in carpool. My sister used to drop me off at college on her drive into the JFL head office, and Daniel, who was her colleague, lived pretty close by. Daniel is a wealth of knowledge, and today he shares his unique path into entertainment along with some excellent tips for anybody curious about working in film and TV. I'm really stoked to interview Daniel today, as I've had so many questions for him since I was 19, but I was way too shy to ask. Let's hop in. And now, hosted by Harry G, this is your one-stop shop for hot talk straight from the top. Whether you're trying to build a job in pop, rock, or any other artsy schlock, here's your top dog with info that can't be bought, it's gotta be sought. So sit back, crack a six-pack, because we're about to chit-chat and rip facts. It's the First Act Podcast. I haven't seen you since I think we were carpooling and I was going to school and you still worked at Just for Laughs. Yeah, I mean, that's you're going back, what, about oh, 10, 10 years ago almost at this point, I think. I was at Just for Laughs for four or five years. So yeah, it's going back quite a ways. It's really great to have a chance to sit down with you. You know, there were, there were so many questions that I had when I was like excited about working in music, but I was too shy to talk to anybody. My sister was always like, you know, you should talk to Daniel, talk to Daniel. And I never really reached out because I was always like a little nervous. And I remember I reached out to you once just to kind of connect you with somebody that was that had a startup, which was completely unrelated to anything I was doing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, no, that... Uh... Yeah, I remember. Yeah, you put me in contact with, with these startup guys. I remember we had a, a great, uh, great initial conversation. Um, they had a great idea, and I was happy to see the see them get the get their feet wet a little bit. I don't think that they're doing it anymore. At the time, what they were doing was they were built. They were they were making shoes, right? They're yes. Making, like, yeah, they were making have... these kind of custom made shoes, and uh, and at the time, they were looking for celebrity endorsements. Exactly. Uh, so that's they had a few questions regarding that. Yeah, I, I think that they ended up reaching out to like. Was it? Uh, I think it was Wyclef John and Roy Woods, like a, like a couple yes. of hip hop artists, and everything was a bust because they got the meetings because their shoes were really cool and their concept was really cool. But what ended up happening was like you know they were nice guys. They walked into the meeting thinking that no one's going to take advantage of them, and which is a common mistake, right? That is a, a common mistake, and you know I wish sometimes I could turn back time when it comes to talent because. You know, sadly, often is the case that they come to us after the fact. So, you know, as an entertainment lawyer, you know, I'd like to to speak with the talent from the very beginning, you know, so we mm-hmm. can kind of navigate the industry together because often, um, you know, these guys have great ideas. They have these brilliant creative minds, but they're unfamiliar with the industry. Um, and so, you know, it's easy for those who've been who've been in it for a while to to take advantage of that. Right, because they would either have lived it or they would have heard stories from other people where, you know, they had, you know, you, you know, oh, I got taken advantage of my manager because he was also my agent. And when he was booking shows for me, he was taking 10% as an agent and then 20% as a manager. So I was only left with 70% of the gross, right? Like, yeah. You come into issues like that where where business industry folk are double dipping, which is more of like a, I feel like that was more in like the 60s, 70s through like the 90s. I don't know if that's still a thing today. Uh, it's quite prevalent still, still today. Um, and it's funny that you're touching upon management agreements because that 
is really where we see the bulk of the headaches for talent. With no, no disrespect to, to managers, you know, managers will tend to come in very early on in, in the artist's you know, career in the industry. And so they haven't really cut their teeth yet. And so they're just happy that someone's acknowledging their presence. Obviously, flattery goes a long way. So um, when they're in that honeymoon phase, everything seems you know, bright and optimistic. And that's obviously when the talent uh, is at their most vulnerable. Let's get into it. I just wanted to do a quick little intro on you so that everybody out there who's listening does know who you are. So without further ado, this is Mr. Daniel Backner. Yeah, I'm an entertainment lawyer. Um, I've been at Sisto Entertainment. It's a, it's a bit of a mouthful, Sisto Entertainment and Business Law Services. Okay. Uh, but you can just refer to it as, as Sisto Law. Uh, yeah, so I've been there for about six years. It's, it's uh, exclusively an entertainment law firm. And formerly you worked at Just for Laughs in their head office in Montreal and the legal department. Right. For those of you guys who don't know, Daniel, he's represented a wide range of people across the entertainment spectrum, including film producers, music producers, actors, singers, musicians, composers, painters, sculptors, the list goes on. The majority of his work is with independent film and television producers. And I think that I'd like to turn the mic over to you and have you share a little bit about your experience, more so on the indie side, if that's all right. Absolutely. Yeah, that's where the majority of my experience <laughs> uh, lies. I made my way into the industry. It just kind of, I had never imagined um, a career in the arts. I had always planned to go into law, uh, but I didn't know what field necessarily I'd practice it. And obviously, like most people, I always pictured, uh, you know, the legal profession as, you know, litigation and courtrooms and judges and, and objecting to things and being very you know, theatrical and animated when I was younger. Law was always the direction I was going in, but I wasn't quite sure what field it would be in. And then I, I sat around and I thought about it for a bit. You know, I took, uh, I took a few different classes here and there, and I, I ultimately decided I wanted to practice uh, corporate law. How, you know, how interesting does that sound? But that was something that, that interested me. I, I liked the Well, it's where the money is, right? <laughs> I won't lie. That might have influenced me a bit. I settled on that as, as the field I wanted to go in, I think, which is what a lot of people you know, do. And then I decided to go and do a, a business degree first. Uh, so I went and I did that um, at uh, the John Molson School of Business uh, in Montreal at Concordia University. Uh, and then when I finished business school, I then went to uh, law school. And I, this, because I am here in Quebec, um, I decided, having been an Anglophone, an English-speaking English, uh, person, you know, whose mother's tongue was English, um, if I was going to practice here, I may as well try and master the French language as much as possible. Um, so I decided to do my law degree at um, a French university here in Montreal, the uh, Université de, de Montréal. So I did my law degree there, and, and that's it. And then I, I went, I passed the bar exam. How was that adjustment? Did you speak French really well in like high school and then throughout college? Or were you like, okay, like I can carry a conversation. My writing is okay. <laughs> I grew up, uh, you know, going to English schools with very, you know, English public schools with, you know, the very basic French class um, that we all had to do. And that was it. I think really, I mean, I, I had conversational French. Uh, I, I had grown up in the West Island of Montreal, which as you know, is primarily English. Uh, but then I had moved out um, to, to the Vaudreuil-Soulange area, which is just off the island of Montreal, which, is, which at the time was, was much more Francophone. Okay. And so the friends that I made and the sports teams that I played on were more French. So that was where I kind of learned the bulk of my, my French was, you know, just conversational with uh, circumstances with friends. 
putting yourself in in more more or less like a fish out of water situation. You kind absolutely. of force absolutely force yourself to be immersed in it. So that's it exactly. So I figured I had a conversational base. My my written French uh, was not great. So when I was trying to decide what, what law school to go to, I figured, listen, if I'm gonna if I'm gonna practice in Quebec, uh, which the majority of the legal profession here is is in is in French, I figured law in in and of itself is its own language. So I may as well, you know, two birds one stone. Do it in French, grind my way through it, and uh, and come out the other side. And and that's ultimately what happened. So while you were in school, you decided that, you know what, I'm going to be an intern at Just for Laughs. Now, now what led to this? Yeah, that's a funny story. Um, at the end of my first year of law school, I was just desperately looking for a job in the legal profession. Um, I still hadn't ever, you know, pictured in working in the arts. Uh, Just for Laughs was not on my radar at all. Um, well, hold on. So, why, why do you think that is? Do you think it's because, you know, you necessarily, you weren't necessarily interested in the arts at the time or that you didn't know that working in the arts was actually a possibility? I think, I, I think it's a bit of both. I think I hadn't ever really given it the time of day to, to consider it. Right. Um, I, I would never have described myself as an artistic person. I would probably screw up a stick figure if you asked me to draw it. I mean, I, you know, I didn't have an artistic bone in my body. So I guess just by virtue of that, I'd never explored it. Plus I was a bit of a shy kid. So my only real exposure to the arts was the one drama class in high school that I avoided like the plague because I was, I was shy. Because you so, didn't want to perform in front of everybody. No, exactly. No. So I couldn't sing. I couldn't dance. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't, I couldn't act. So I think my skills were better suited behind the camera than in front of it. All that being said, it was the end of my first year of law school and I was just desperate to find a job in the legal world. And I was asking everybody I know if they had a, you know, a friend, a cousin, a neighbor who worked at a law firm who, you know, would hire me for the summer and none of that was working out. And then finally, one day I was on a train coming back from Montreal and I happened to bump into a, a childhood friend of mine who I had also coincidentally run into again in business school. So, you know, we were familiar and I just, you know, I figured why not ask him, does he know anybody? And surprisingly he goes, he says he doesn't know anybody specifically, but he had worked in business development at just for laughs the year before. And he said that he, he didn't know for sure, but he, remembered them hiring law students to draft and negotiate all of the talent agreements for all the comedians who came to Montreal for the, for the big festival that takes place here every year. Right. So he said, uh, it was, let me put you in contact with someone there and uh, we'll see what happens. And then I guess the, the rest is history. I, I got an interview. Um, I got the job and then I ended up working there every summer while I was in law school. Uh, what was the interview process like? You know, I mean, you didn't you didn't have a background in the arts. You know, they were, I guess they were obviously looking for somebody who was a little bit more of a legal professional or some or a, or a law student. What, can you talk a little bit about what the interview process was like? That's you see that, that that's also a funny story. So I was all prepared always funny for my, stories. <laughs> it's always it's, it's funny story because you know what? It's a series of fortunate events of how I ended up here. Right. Um, none of it was planned. It all just kind of happened. So 
I, like all of my, my peers at the time, were trying to get their first summer jobs after their first year of law school. And so we, you know, we're all competing for, you know, the most prestigious jobs, at the most prestigious law firms. Mm-hmm. And everybody is suiting up to go to their interviews and to try, try and be on their best behavior. So I ended up having my interview um, with Just for Laughs in, I think, might have been in April of that year. And for some reason, the day of my interview, it was really, it was a really hot day. And I, as all my colleagues did, I dressed up in the full suit, you know, briefcase and all, wanted to look the part. And so I showed up at Just for Laughs and, you know, sweating my ass off because it's so hot outside. And I get there and I see everybody's in shorts and flip-flops <laughs> and t-shirts. And so I, uh, I get in there and I'm being interviewed by these two uh, wonderful people who I, I, uh, I came to know very well in my time there. It was Suzanne Hinks and, um, and Robin Kayser. So they interviewed me and they didn't waste any time in pointing out that I was dressed in a three-piece suit on a 30-degree weather day. And so they laughed because they said, it's, you know, they interview a lot of people for the summer positions at Just for Laughs for the yeah. festival. And it's always the people who interview for the contracts position that come dressed in a suit and they're the only ones. So they laughed. It just so happened that the, that the office I was in, the windows were facing the sun. So I also had the sun beating on me the entire interview. (laughs) So you learned Uh, the hard way. I learned, I learned the hard way, but apparently it happens to everybody who interviews for that, that spot. So, um, so the interview went really well. It was very informal at one point, you know, it was very conversational. I really, I didn't feel like they were actually trying to find out what my skill set was. It was more about would I be a right fit for right. their team. Um, so it was just very conversational. And uh, and I at one point I even I, I even asked them, you know, I told them I had prepared for this interview and I prepared, you know, that the classic weaknesses and it, you know, describe your weaknesses, describe your skills, question. And they probably and, said, which comedians do you like? Yeah. Yeah. No, they didn't even go that far. Uh, Cause they know that like a lot of people that are first coming to the industry may not necessarily know the industry very well or can name a comedian. But what they did do when I said that was they said, Oh, that's a great idea. Then tell us, tell us what your skills and your, your weaknesses are. So I set myself up for my own question. You shot yourself in the foot. I shot but, myself in the foot. But, 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 you, but you, you came across prepared. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Okay. So that, that's good. So what, what did they think? Uh, they laughed and they, they kind of, uh, when, when it came time to talk about my weaknesses, I mean, they didn't hesitate to grill me on it because I had set myself up for that question. So, What's uh, a good weakness? It, like, what, what is something that you've shared in the past or, or I guess for this interview, do you remember what your weakness was? Oh, geez. I think it was one of those like cliche, uh, I work too hard things. I don't, I can't, I can't, I don't remember anymore. I'm a perfectionist. Uh, I don't remember anymore. But I think that little interaction actually was what broke the ice because we kind of laughed about it. And then that, Kind of made everyone, well, everyone. It was three of us in the room, kind of more comfortable. And then we just had a really easygoing conversation about the team at Just for Laughs, what the, what the, um, you know, the culture was, uh, you know, of the of the Just for Laughs office, and you know, did I feel like I'd be a good fit? And right. uh, and I think, um, you know, I, I think I, I, at the time I was nervous, but I think I, I was I was a good fit for them, and they apparently agreed with me, and uh, and the rest was history. Cool. So how long were you there for? You said like three or four years? I was there for, I think, four, for four years. For four, well, four years. I was there, I was working in the summer for about four months each summer. Um, okay. You know, between school years. So, that so everybody got I to know you. And, yeah. and so in this job, did you, do you find that 
you were, you had a good opportunity to apply the knowledge that you'd learned in school or did you learn mo- most of it on the job? So I would say that so much of the entertainment industry is learn as you go. It's, 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 in, it's, it's industry customs, it's industry practices, it's industry norms. And there's a lot of stuff that you don't know about until you've experienced it um, in this industry. So I came in with, you know, a, a fundamental knowledge of, of contract law, but really, I mean, I think, you know, 98% of the work I was doing had nothing to do with the law. It was right. just about, it was more about people skills. And, um, you know, I was working off of templates, contract templates that they had had there for years. So I didn't have to, you know, know how to, to draft a contract from scratch. But what I did quickly have to learn was how to tweak and how to adapt contracts to um, different scenarios. So definitely, I think my people skills were tested and my, my ability to think on the fly was tested. And, you know, there was some legal side, legal elements to it, but not as much as you would think. It was really about just kind of learning about the industry. So I'm trying to think of what, what kind of great skills or how to prepare well to not only interview or land an interview in this sort of setting, because you said it was through a contact, right? It's not right. like you went and you applied online at Just for Laughs. And that's something that, you know, I learned the hard way in entertainment is, you know, when I was applying to like CAA or William Morris, you know, I would, I would go on their website and apply it like careers at agencyname.com. And, you know, I realized there's probably thousands of people, right? Hundreds, if not thousands of people who are applying for these jobs and they don't have time. They don't have the manpower to go through all of these candidates and they don't have the positions. Like they're looking to hire one or two people in each department, they're not going to go through thousands of applicants. They're going to say, well, you know, who do you know? Yeah. Right. I think, I think so much of it is who do you know? Um, but using just for last as an example, they do post on their website, you know, the, the, the summer positions that they were hiring for. So had I gone onto their website, um, I would have seen that they were hiring contract administrators um, for the summer. So you could have followed. Uh, just so it just happened that I, I knew somebody who knew somebody. Right. Uh, but that, that was only good insofar as it got me um, in the door. The right. rest was up to me. Absolutely. Definitely. It's about who you know. Um, it's about, you know, getting out there and, and, you know, getting, you know, hitting the pavement and just grinding it really. I know it sounds really cliche, but it's about, you know, so I'm trying to deconstruct these cliches, right? Yeah. So you, you mentioned some really, really, really great characteristics that somebody needs to have. And I think that it's tried and true in what you're saying, in what I've experienced firsthand, in what I've heard from other people that I've worked with in entertainment, they, nobody has the same path. Everybody has a drastically different path in entertainment. Mm-hmm. However, there's certain key characteristics that you need to have when you're just getting started. Right. Right. And so here you were coming in as an intern, you said, well, you know, 90% of the knowledge that I had from school, like it's not, it wasn't necessarily applicable. 10% of it was. So I took like the contract knowledge and I, and I applied that to their templates and I tweaked things. And, you know, I took, I used my own, my own judgment. Right. Right. But then you said, there's a lot of people skills and you need to have drive. You need to show that you're engaged and you have, and that's where the creativity really comes into play. Absolutely. and you can make any job in entertainment creative. And so that's where I want to kind of deconstruct and say, okay, well, what did Daniel Backner do to stand out? Not only that he successfully completed a four month internship, but then they asked him to come back the year after, which, you know, in a lot of cases in entertainment could be rare. You Absolutely. know, it's- yeah. I think it's about 
developing those interpersonal skills. I think working on, you know, your ability to communicate. I think it's working on your ability to, um, to be put in situations that you're unfamiliar with and to adapt quickly. You definitely can't be, you know, a hermit and, and, and do well um, in this industry. This industry is built on connections. It's built on networks. It's built on doing lunches, as they say in LA. So, you know, you need to be ready to, you know, communicate, to, to interact with people, uh, people you've met many times, people you uh, are meeting for the first time. Those type of interpersonal skills are key. And that's kind of the jumping off point is once you feel comfortable in your own skin to go out there and, and to actually talk with people, then you can start, you know, refining and, and developing you know, your communication skills further. And so was this, was this primarily an English or a French environment that you were working in? Uh, at the, thankfully, the time uh, Just for Laughs really segregated its English side of the festival from its French side. So I was 100% on the English side. Okay. Um, we would convene sometimes with our counterparts on the French side to share ideas, but it was rare. And it's important that you knew how to speak French with the French colleagues as well. Yeah, well, we would kind of speak franglais, as we say. You know, we would kind yeah. of we would mix it up. You know, where I could speak French, and I would speak French, where they could speak English, and vice versa. You know, and it would help sometimes if there was an issue that maybe one of us hadn't crossed, you know, come across before, the other one may have. So, um, so that was that was helpful. Plus, the French side of the festival was much was much smaller in scope because it was dealing solely with with really with Quebec artists from Quebec artists from from France whereas our side of the festival was was much bigger um, in terms of, of volume so we were really I think the French side we only had one counterpart on the French side right whereas we usually had three on the English side doing the contracts right because the bulk of entertainment is English uh, yeah, it is it is uh, um, you know and I, and I would love to see more French language content out there I'd love to see more content from Quebec out there you know I recently represented um, a producer on the first French language Netflix original film that just got released on, uh, on Netflix. What's it uh, called? It's called Jusqu'au Déclin. Okay. Uh, and it's a fantastic film made in Quebec up in the Laurentians by a small indie French Quebec based production company. It must be beautiful. There must be beautiful scenery because the Laurentians are very nice. Absolutely. Oh, the, the film is, is gorgeous. It's all shot up there. It's a shot up in and around the, the Santa Gath de Mont region. And um, it was a beautiful, uh, beautiful, beautiful uh, scenery. Very but nice. it's, it's, you, you tend to lose sight of that because it's, it's a bit of a suspense action thriller. So you're focused more on what's happening in, you know, in, the, in the front of the screen rather than what's happening in the back of it. I beg to differ. When I first got into Game of Thrones, which I don't know if you've watched Game of Thrones or uh, not. Absolutely. Start to end. You know, I was getting into Game of Thrones and everybody was like, oh, you haven't seen it yet. You need to watch it. And it was like the same thing with like Harry Potter and Lord of the Rings. You know, like I got into Harry Potter, didn't get into Lord of the Rings until like the last week. But I, I got into Game of Thrones in like 2016, which was already pretty tardy to that party. And I said to myself, you know, even if it's not a good show, it's it, it, the shots are beautiful. Mm-hmm. And that was something that I always admired throughout all of its seasons. Okay, let's shift gears for a second. You know, right. I, 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 want, I, want, I don't want to spend too much time talking about Just for Laughs and, and that. What I really like to do is deconstruct, you know, how to gain those skills as someone who wants to be an intern or just sort of as an assistant or someone entry level in entertainment. Right. And 
you know, to how, how best to prepare yourself for these scenarios coming in. And, you know, something that I picked up on that you said is that when you were learning French, you immersed yourself in sports teams and activities where you were socializing with other French people, right? Mm -hmm. So you were learning a new skill unrelated to, unrelated to entertainment, but you knew that you would need it for your future job prospects. So that's one way to get involved. How about when you were in JMSB doing your undergrad or when you were, when you were in university, did you ever get involved in any sort of any, uh, any groups or clubs where you would meet regularly with people outside of school hours? Um, you know what? That's, that's a sore spot. Cause I, I, I wanted to, but I still hadn't figured out how to shake my shyness. Okay. I, I hadn't figured out how to shake that insecurity. Uh, so as much as I wanted to participate in, you know, things like the, 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 I think there was a, there was a comp, annual competition that took place that, you know, you had to compete for and that would take place against other business schools and stuff. And I, I wanted to do it. I wanted to do it really badly, but I was too, I was too shy. I, frankly, that, that's really it. And I, I lacked the, I think the self-confidence to, to say, you know, I could do that because you know, when I, when I go into something <laughs> and maybe this is my more competitive side, like I want to know that I, I have a shot of winning from the very right. beginning. So, you know, I can prepare myself as much as possible, but I would have these fears, you know, saying I've only been a business student for one year or two years. And do I really have the skills to compete with everybody else? And at the time I, I kind of talked myself out of it, which in retrospect now I'm kind of you know sad about because what I learned eventually was that sometimes in life, you just, you have to take the leap. You have to do it and and hope for the best um and if you and i know this sounds super cliche but you know if you fail you just pick yourself up and you you do you try again but you learn from from your mistakes right Uh, i guess things are cliches because they actually you know apply again and again the concept of it so that's it and i'm sure you got like a free pass to the festival so you got to see some comedy shows and yeah i was i was everywhere uh i was backstage at all the at most of the uh, at most of the big shows um to deal with any last minute issues that could come up. Um, so I had a, I, I had an all access pass. Did you get to meet any people that you'd been on email with that were from LA or from New York or from wherever else in the world? Thankfully, yes, because what's nice about the Just for Laughs festival that takes place in Montreal every year is that there's, there's two sides to the festival. There's the, there's the comp, there's the talent side, right. With the shows um, that take place at all the venues in and around Montreal for you know, three weeks but there's also an industry side, an industry conference side of the festival uh, that pretty much entirely takes place at what used to be the Hyatt Hotel uh, right across from Place des Arts, uh, downtown Montreal. So, you know, I could pick and choose. I could go and spend the day at the Hyatt interacting with um, the industry folk who are, you know, m- mostly agents, managers, and some lawyers who come in from all over, a lot, a lot from L.A., and a lot from New York because those are the two big comedy scenes um, right. in the U.S. So you have a lot of industry people at the hotel. So and there'd be a lot of panels, a lot of conferences. So I would try and attend as many of those as I could, and just try and meet people, uh, learn about the industry. I wasn't so much trying to make contacts as I was trying to just learn about what happens behind the scenes right. um, in the industry. And I found that the more knowledge that I acquired about how things work, the more confident I came in my ability to, to talk to people and to, and to bridge that gap. It, it reassured me that I was, as much as I felt like I wasn't learning, I was learning. 
Um, And so the conversations with industry people became easier as time went on. And, um, and that was how I got, you know, comfortable talking to, um, to industry people. Um, there's a different language for that too. Oh, without a doubt, without a doubt. I mean, and it's sad to say, but so much of this industry is built on ego and built on kind of these vain personality traits. So you have to develop a thick skin without a doubt. And you have to, you know, you have to learn to, to see through the bullshit. It's, there's a lot of bullshit that goes on. But you gotta learn, you gotta develop those skills to be able to see through it. I see it like playing poker, honestly. Like, you know, you have to be able to read people a little bit and you, and also there's, there's in the industry, it's like, it's very common. I find that it's like, if you meet somebody who is extremely humble, they can be misconstrued as somebody with, with not a lot of experience or not a lot of exposure but it's typically those people who are like the uh, quote unquote legends that they'll they'll walk through any, through any party. They'll, they'll talk to anybody intern to from assistant all the way up to executives, but you know, they're kind of keeping to themselves because they're just watching and admiring. And those are the people you want to keep an eye out for because those are the ones that you really learn the most from. Without a doubt. I would say that the the people to fear are always the quietest ones in the room. I, I really hope that this gives people good indication of, where to get started. You know, if you're in high school and you're interested in working in the arts, there are certain skills that you're going to need if you do want to gain experience as an intern. Even, you know, you could probably force your way into a company that works in comedy or works in motion picture or works in music or any other field in the arts that you want to work in. Yeah. I think think it's about taking the leap. And I think it's, it's regardless of what field of entertainment you do it in, I think you're going to benefit from it regardless because right. you will start to develop those interpersonal skills. Um, and that in and of itself will build your confidence and that will, and it will also open doors possibly to other uh, sides of the industry. So I you think know, it's really, it's about taking the leap. And, you know, when I didn't know anybody um, and I was in the UK and I went to the UK partially because I wanted exposure to, you know, another country, but also because I wanted exposure to the music industry. And, you know, that, that was something that I was interested in. I took a trip with a friend to Dublin and I dragged him to a newfound glory show. And they were just kind of like a band that I really idolized in like the early two thousands. Like when I was like a, like a teenager or even younger. And I had a phenomenal time at the show. And what I tried to do is I was like, I want to meet the band, but I also want to meet like the tour manager. I know that there's like a tour manager on tour with them. And, you know, everybody wants to meet the lead singer or like the drummer or whoever they kind of have like a a bit of a girl crush on, but no one's really thinking about the people that are like the tour manager or like if they're, if the actual managers on tour with them, or maybe the agent came out to a couple shows and Mm -hmm. those people typically, especially at like a smaller venue, if you live in like a smaller city, they're not going to know anybody. And if you go up and you sort of take that leap to speak to them, try to identify who they are or ask, you know, there's no harm in asking, Oh, who's the tour manager and try to find out a name or try to find them, Google them or go look on LinkedIn or, or try to see what they look like and match that, that photo with, with somebody that you see at the show or somebody with a pass. And you could be like, Oh yeah, I'm looking for Derek you know, Oh yeah, he's right over there. You know, just kind of act like you belong and that will give you an opportunity to get, get in. And I, I know think, that I think, sounds- I think you really hit the, the, the nail on the head there. I think, you know, when people think about making their way to the industry, they might initially think, you know, they need to reach out to the talent. But like you said, I think, you know, 
it's not so much the talent. It's 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 the representatives. It's the agents. It's the managers. They control the every managers. The talent does. Oh, absolutely. Everything, everything's structured. You know, all the creative is all the talent. You know, people need to be aware that as large as the industry might seem from the outside, it is actually a very small community from the it inside. Is. You run into the same people over and over and over again. Um, and, and it so, doesn't matter which which section of the industry that you're that's in. What, yeah, exactly. You know, you one just get into the industry in any way possible. And then that in and of itself will open up doors to other sides of it. Exactly. Um, you know, an, another quick little tidbit that I was just going to share is, so I went to this newfound glory show and I didn't meet anybody. <laughs> I, I sat outside the venue. Yeah, I didn't know there was a back door and I was waiting. I waited for an hour and a half with a friend in the rain, waiting for the band to come out and they didn't come. And we were just kind of drinking in the streets cause that's Dublin. I was, I remember the feeling inside of me, like the jitters. I was like, I was forcing my friend to stay there with me, which I felt really uncomfortable about because I don't like to put anybody out. And I was like, if I meet them, what am I going to say? I don't even know what I'm going to say. My friend's like, what are you even going to say to these people? And I was like, I don't know, but I'll figure it out when I see them. And nobody came out because I didn't know that they'd gone through the back like five minutes after the end of the set. And they just like went to a bar somewhere, which I just remember being so nervous. But the fact that I was nervous and not knowing what I would say to them was actually a lesson also to then be like, next time, think of like two or three questions that I can ask them, you know, whether it's at like a panic at the disco concert, or even if if it's at like a local show where you can try to meet the band who, you know, plays to a nearly empty room you know, you can kind of blow up their egos too and ask them about their experience going on tour across Canada or across the States. Or you could try to meet like the concert promoter who put on, who put together that show, who usually books in 250 capacity venues. These people are a lot more attainable than, you know, Green Day's tour manager. So you can always shoot for the stars, especially in a time like this, but you know, you want to be a little prepared. And it's okay if you're not prepared because if you screw up, we all do. And that's what makes the best stories, like wearing a suit to an interview. Yeah, it's, it's just, it's about uh, knowing your audience. Uh, it always helps, like you said, to, to have done some research ahead of time, to come up with questions beforehand. Um, but what I've quickly learned is that nothing ever really plays out the way you planned it to. Just be ready to be unprepared. And it's funny because uh, when I was studying to do, to do the bar exam, it was a scene, an older lawyer who told me, you know, if you want to be a lawyer, get ready for a life of uncertainty. You know, to be a lawyer is to live perpetually you know, in un- uncertainty. And I think that applies as well to the entertainment industry. I think you, know, you just, as certain as you can be about things, you just have to be prepared to, to be uncertain and to take the leap and hope that the, the chips fall in your, fl- in your favor. Like you said, it just, every experience is a learning experience. Cool. All right. We've been talking a lot about people behind the scenes. So let's talk a little bit about um, creative side. So the producer side of things, I guess, I guess you could say, because, because really I find that a lot of, a lot of lawyers, entertainment lawyers will, I, you know, you'll dabble in both, but for the most part, you'll notice that entertainment lawyers will either stick to representing more talent or they'll stick to representing more producers. Right. Um, Mainly because when you say talent, you mean like actors and well, ta- yeah. So when I say talent, I mean actors, directors, uh, crew, the creative people, so to speak, versus the producers who I won't say lack creativity, but they're more the business minds behind well, actually getting getting a movie made. They're creative in a business sense. 
Exactly. I mean, they're the ones putting all the pieces together to ultimately create uh, a finished product. But, you know, one can't live without the other. You know, they need the, the creative minds of the talent and the talent needs the business minds of the producers to make a, a great film. So um, in terms of the producer side of things, I think that the most important thing I can ever tell an independent film producer is to make sure from day one that they have what we refer to as chain of title. And chain of title that? refers to the ultimate ownership of the project that you're creating, right? It allows one to know that they have the rights to actually make the film that they're making. In its simplest form, you're a producer, you want to make a movie, right? You have a friend who wrote a great script, great screenplay, okay? And you want to adapt that screenplay now into a film. So, you know, the ball starts rolling, you read the script, you love it, you start getting, uh, you know, comments on the script, you start trying to, to attach a director or actors to the script. And then let's say you, you know, you manage to attach a director, you manage to uh, attach um, an actor, you get your crew lined up, you know, you get your location secured and you start filming. Right. Question becomes, do you actually have the right to make this movie? Because as a matter of law, copyright ownership of a creative work isn't transferred from one party to another unless it's in writing. Right. So, and that's under the Canadian Copyright Act. So unless you have a clear and concise agreement, written agreement with the guy who wrote the screenplay, congratulations, you now co-own your film with the guy who wrote the screenplay. So chain of title is about locking down those rights, right? From day one. So what could that look like? Let's say I know a director, right? Right. And he's working with the people that actually wrote the screenplay. They found him. They, they attached him to it. They said, you know what? We want you to be the director of this work. Right. And that director knows me and I'm somebody who can help secure financing. So let's say he sends that script out to me and then I go around and I find three people that can pool together, you know, $10,000 each and we get $30,000 or 40,000, including my own. Right. And we come to the people who actually created the work, how would that work? You're touching on a lot of different elements there. You're talking about, uh, you know, talent, in terms of directors, you're talking about the writers, you're talking about the financiers. I'm sure there's a producer thrown in there in the mix. If you're definitely dealing with like small, low budget, micro budget kind of guerrilla productions where people wear multiple hats, that's the type of scenario that you'll run into more often than not. We're talking independent. So people are independent. Absolutely. Likely going to have to wear more than one hat. Independent isn't just a couple of guys, you know, with a handy cam, you know, you independent can be upwards of 10 or, you know, 25 or $50 million productions. They right. don't necessarily need a studio for that. But I think that you really need to look at these things in different and really in their own boxes. Because if let's say you're, you're talking about a scenario where the writer is coming, who's attached a director, who's attached financiers, there's a lot of baggage there. Um, I'm presuming then that they're approaching a producer to actually put this all together. Right. So a producer might look at this and say, great, but I am now going to have to figure out how to make a film with all this kind of baggage that the, the writer has come to me with. And often, and maybe we're dealing with a little larger budget productions, is that you know, who directs it, who, uh, who's in it, who the actors are, will depend also on um, the flavor of the month, sales estimates and distributor sales estimates. Um, because the question is, is who's bankable? Really, because if you're out there trying to secure financing, you know, you're more likely to get it if you hire 
Hugh Jackman versus that no one's ever heard about. You know, all these elements will play a role when you're trying to figure out who's going to fill what position in terms of the production. The way it works more often than not is you have someone who's written a screenplay and they approach a producer or a producer approaches them because the producer likes it and they'll want to acquire the screenplay from them. So they'll either license the film and TV rights from them or they'll acquire the script outright from the, from the writer. And then the producer will then go on and, I, and they'll have the screenplay vetted, polished, maybe rewritten a few times. Whether or not the initial writer is still involved in the process later on uh, depends on you know, their degree of influence when they first handed the rights over to the producer. Um, and then with that script, then the producer can go out and start trying to attach the director, the, te- the, the actors. And so right off the bat, that makes me think of, let's say a book were to be adapted into a movie or into a show, the writer from the book isn't always the writer for the movie. So whoever wrote the book would have to license their rights or license the rights to, I guess, who's gonna, whoever's going to be put, turning that into a book or into a movie or into a, another theatrical show. Could be like a Broadway show, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, ultimately what a producer ultimately turns a creative work into depends entirely on you know, their, their business model. But let's take the example you gave of a, of a television series. And you took it one step further. You complicated the matter a little bit by it not being somebody who wrote a, a pilot episode teleplay, but now you're talking about a guy who wrote a book who now wants to adapt that into a series. So what you would do in that instance is you would go and acquire the film and television adaptation rights to the book from the original author, right? So now you, you have the rights in your possession as a producer to now go out and turn that into a television series, okay? But and the deal terms for, for that could be so different from one deal to another, right? Absolutely. I mean, every deal is negotiated on a case-by-case basis and it will depend on multiple factors. I mean, is this a book that came out 40 years ago or is this a book that's currently a New York Times bestseller? Um, Is the author Stephen King or is he somebody you've never heard of? Right. It'll it'll, it'll depend on a case-by-case basis every time. So there are relative industry norms as to what kind of deal you make depending on the, you know, the stature of the talent. That's a very, it's like a needle in a haystack. It's very rough to say that that's how it's, how it always is. How can somebody who either would want to be a producer or, or somebody who wants to be a director start to learn about this without getting a law degree, right? Yeah. I would hope that if they went to film school, that there was at least one class, if not one day where they touched upon chain of title because chain of title is everything because without chain of title, i.e. the right to, to make the film, to control the underlying rights sufficiently to actually make the film, then great, you made a film, but you can never exploit it because right. you, you, know, you haven't secured the rights. So I think- That's um, the worst case scenario because then you've invested all this time, all this money, you've probably lost credibility now at this point with a lot of the people that you, that you, that you would have had on the project. They're like, this guy doesn't know what he's doing. Right. Well, thankfully, it'll, it's rare that it'll get that far without having secure chain. I mean, it happens, but it's rare that it'll go that far without securing chain of title because there's people along the way who will want to see your chain of title, right. who will want to see the contracts from the guy who wrote the book that you got the rights from or the guy who wrote the screenplay that you bought the screenplay from. They'll want to know that before they put money in this project or before they attach themselves to this project, that you actually have the right to make this film. 
So this is an incredible question. It's a very powerful question that anybody who's just getting started out, let's say they were offered a position to be a part of some movie or, or, or some TV show, that this is a really great question for them to ask. And also probably to Google on their own time a little bit more information about this, other examples that might have come up in the past, worst case scenarios like we were talking about before with like management contracts. You know, it's, it's really important to educate yourself on some of the business background so that you can protect yourself as a creative. You nailed it right there with that statement. More often than not, the creative side will get so caught, and I don't mean this in a bad way, I mean, they're so caught up in the, in the, in the creative side of things that they'll either they'll lose sight of or not know that there is a very serious business and legal side to all of this. You see that less with producers with experience, uh, but definitely when you're dealing with young producers, men and women who are straight out of film school, they're so eager and they're so hungry uh, to make a film, that's great, but you can't lose sight of the fact that the rights are just as important as the talent. You said people with experience, it will happen less and less with them. Why do you think that is? They've probably they seen it before. Once the, the man or woman right out of film school and probably made this mistake themselves. You have to live it once to realize, okay, that's how it's done. I, exactly. You know, I'll do this properly next time. Exactly. If let's say you're coming straight out of school and you feel insecure and you feel shy and you say, I don't have any experience, mm -hmm. then you, know, you don't want to be the one to make those mistakes that so many others have made in the past. Why not just take 30 minutes or an hour and Google around, learn about this so that you can be even better prepared coming into a meeting or into your first project so that your learning experience doesn't have to be that you're getting burned. Your first experience could be, wow, this person is a creative, but they're very well versed in rights knowledge. They know a little bit about the business and you know what? I want to work with them again. And that's really good for your personal branding and for your reputation in the industry. And, and you know what? When I, when I have a client who reaches out to me and says, you know, I want to, I want to make this movie, but I've also secured the rights from the writer. And I've also, you know, I've also... I've papered it, right? I look at this, this, this person, I say, okay, this person knows what they're doing. They're cautious. Their feet aren't moving quicker than their brains, right? Right. And so that is the perfect starting off point is from the very beginning to ask these questions and as much as possible, speak with an entertainment lawyer who can guide you because off, a lot of what I do is it's like, ha you don't ha not hand-holding, because I don't want to say that in a, in, a, in a derogatory way, but you help guide the you know, young producers and help them navigate the industry. And when they come to us at the very beginning from the outset, we can advise them about things like chain of title and whatnot, so they don't have to try and you know, gather the animals after they've let them out of the barn, so to speak. So I think getting proper representation, legal representation early on is key. Because I've been hearing this a lot and I know that a lot of people are, they shy away from it because they're like, well, lawyers are so expensive and you know, I don't have the yeah, money. Yeah. Unfortunately, that's, you know, my peers have, you know, over time developed somewhat of a reputation. Now that's just lawyers as a whole. And it, it's really funny because when I tell people, people ask me what I do and I say, I'm a lawyer and they go, Oh, and then I say, I'm an entertainment lawyer. And they go, Oh, 
And they say, well, how is that different from, from being a regular lawyer? Because I think everybody in their minds kind of has this image of lawyers being these kind of litigious, you know, in the courtroom pit bulls that are aggressive and they charge high hourly fees. And it's something that people, you know, aren't entirely familiar with. So for lack of a better expression, it's scary to speak to a lawyer. I wish that's a, a stereotype I could break with regards to entertainment lawyer specifically, because more often than not, I rarely wear a suit and tie to work. It's, you know, it's, it's polo and jeans. Well, you learn if your office is, is facing the sun on a hot, <laughs> on a hot April day. Way, it just relaxed, absolutely. <laughs> but even in my practice now where I work at an entertainment law firm, I mean, it's a very comfortable atmosphere. It's very LA in its, in its culture and its style. And we don't do that just to be approachable you know, with regards to talent, but that's just, you know, when you're in this industry, you kind of have to, you know, loosen the tie a little and, and become a little more relaxed because it's, it's an artistic. And more relatable. Uh, just a quick little closing remark here. Is it okay if I share uh, your contact, if anybody approaches me and says, you know, like I actually am an independent filmmaker or I want to be a filmmaker. Can you put me in touch with Daniel Backner? That you, you are more than welcome to, and I'd appreciate the reference. And if ever it is something uh, that I can help them with, great. And if it's not, if it lies outside of my expertise, then I'm very happy to refer them to somebody who, you know, would be more experienced in that field, which may not necessarily have to do with entertainment, but uh, is a legal question nonetheless. So I'm, I would be very happy to, to have you uh, refer people to us. Awesome. Daniel, thank you so much for being a part of this podcast. I really, really believe that anybody listening to this episode, whether they want to work on the business end, on the creative end, maybe they just want to be a comedian. I, I really hope that they were able to take something away from this. I, I know that I learned a lot just from chatting with you. And, you know, it's, it's also nice to sort of think about old, old Harrison when I was, you know, we, we were carpooling downtown and, being, and, and me being like a little nervous to ask you any questions, you know, just, just being a little nervous. Listen, uh, my door is always open. You know, I have a soft spot uh, in my heart for talent that are trying to break their way into the industry because it can be so daunting and because it can be so intimidating. You know, I want to kind of throw away that reputation that lawyers have as being, you know, you know, in an ivory tower. Yeah, perfect. Well, Daniel, thank you so much. I'll let you get on with your day. I'm sure you're busy. Yeah, um, my, my pleasure. So that's the interview. Just wanted to say thanks so much for tuning in and listening to this episode. If we mentioned something you liked that stood out to you, or if you just learned something new, we want to hear about it. Please leave us a review on Apple or any of our other socials. Take care, stay safe, and have a wonderful day.